Now, I understand that God doesn't have a cell phone. Just need to get that out of the way. I, I do understand that he is not being serviced by T-Mobile or Verizon. But say God does have a cell phone. Say he does have a cell phone and say his number is unknown. Say his number is unlisted. Say you don't have his number. And say you happen to bump into him somewhere and he strikes up a conversation with you and say God gives you his contact information and says, call me, connect with me anytime. I would love to hear from you. I want to continue this conversation. What would you do? How would you respond? I think it's easy to say, well, yes, we would, but I think maybe we should be a little more hesitant and discerning in our answer if we're going to be truthful. Some of us might call ASAP, or rather text, because we're like allergic to phone calls these days. It's easier to text, right? Others might just recoil and never call at all. I know it sounds a bit odd, God with a cell phone number. I grant that, but here's the thing we should consider. Him giving you his number would be a gift, wouldn't it? Him saying, contact me, it would be a gift. In doing so, he has gifted you with an invitation to fellowship, right? He's gifted you with an invitation to fellowship. It is a gift that then awaits a response. In other words, God has started the conversation. God has started the conversation. That changes everything. Now, here's why I bring this up. First, we are talking about prayer. And our text today is often called the high priestly prayer. It's the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. Um, but there's another reason why this strange illustration came to light for me. And it, it's simply this. And I hope it's a helpful parallel. I hope it's a helpful uh, analogy. But this past year, I, I met somebody who I had grown to um, learn from, from afar, that I've respected. I resonated with the way they thought, with the way they spoke, with the way they taught. And we ran into each other, and we got in a conversation. And at one point, he said, here's my contact information. He said, let's continue this conversation. I would love to, to keep this thing going. And so I was, I was floored. I was amazed. I was, I was honored. And, and so what did I do? Well, I contacted him. And then he ended up responding graciously, graciously to me. And now there's been a friendship that is established. And it just it blows, blows me away every time I think about it. And I go, that was a gift. He said, here's my contact information. Connect with me. I'd love to see this go go further. It was an absolute gift. Now, I believe there is something of an analogy regarding this experience. See, prayer is a given, right? We know this. Prayer is a given. Everybody knows prayer is a given for a Christian. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be religious at all. You, you go, prayer is a given, right? Family feud style question. It's like, what, what do Christians do? And first thing on the list would be, they pray. That's what religious people do, right? They pray. So to be a Christian is to be somebody who prays. Prayer is an absolute given. But what we don't often recognize about prayer is that prayer 
is given. Prayer is given. It's a gift. Prayer is the gift of the invitation into fellowship and into intimacy. Prayer is a given invitation into fellowship. Now, I want to say it uh, a different way here, but first let me say this. Uh, last week we talked about demythologizing prayer, right? Redefining prayer. And we talked about how praying is talking with God first and most about everything. So that was a redefining of prayer. Today what we need to do, I believe, is to reframe prayer. How do we approach this talking with God first and most about everything? In short, it's this. Uh, we need to understand this way of framing things to move forward in a healthy way. Prayer is often and primarily seen. Prayer is often and primarily seen as asking God to give us something. But before that, first and foremost, we need to see prayer as a gift God has already given us. Reframes the whole thing. Before it's earth asking anything of heaven, it is heaven starting a conversation with earth. That reframes how we come to prayer. God has started the conversation. God has started the conversation. And that is what we need to know as we move into our text today. And this reimagining or reseeing prayer changes simply how we approach prayer. Again, we often see prayer as us engaging God, hoping he'll respond, as us pulling on heaven, hoping to say the right words, and, and hoping to be noticed that he might respond. But the opposite is true. Heaven has already engaged us. Heaven is already looking and listening and waiting. That's how it works. We love because he first loved us. Prayer is not the first word. Prayer is the second word. It is a response to God. It is an answer to the one who already has spoken in creation and in his word and in Christ Jesus. God has started the conversation, which is great news. So let's look at our text today. It's, it's an amazing text. I, I do want to say this. It's an amazing text. It's a winding text. You're going you're to read it again and go, wow, that's amazing. It's beautiful. I have no clue what it means. It's a sumptuous feast of words, and you're eating, and you're like, I have no idea what I'm putting in my body right now. What does this mean? So um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to step back from this text, and we're going to try to get the key theme of it. We're going to try to feel the impression of it. Because, again, it's one of those passages that's so bright with glory. It's like staring at the sun. It's hard to see because you're looking into something so bright and so glorious. So the impression that comes through these bright words. Gave, gave, given, given, gave, given. See, watch what happens now. Let's go to the next slide. Do you see those words now that pop out? So you got to look for repetition in the text. This is one of the ways that the authors were saying, here's what I'm talking about. Listen up, pay attention. And if you go through this text, Again, which is challenging, and you see these, suddenly the theme starts to develop. 
I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. That last sentence is even a statement of, of givenness. So, what is Jesus getting at here? What is he getting at here? Well, first he says this amazing thing that's uh, probably not our first thought when we go into prayer. But he says this amazing thing that he wants his apprentices to overhear. And he wants us to overhear it as well. And it's this. The Father has given people to Jesus, his Son. The Father has given his people to his Son. In other words, followers of Jesus are those that the Father has given to his Son. Now, what does this mean? Well, a couple things. First, it means that we're saved by grace through faith. It means that the Father has brought this life of faith about. The Father has given Jesus those who follow him. Only those who are drawn by the Father can come to Jesus, it says in John 6, 44. It also means this amazing thing, that the church, God's people, are a gift to the Son of God, which is a mind-blowing thought. So Peter, Paul, and Mary, right? Not the folk band, but Peter, Paul, and Mary, John, Augustine, Sojourner Truth, St. Teresa, you, me, us, we are gifts that the, God, that the Father has given to the Son, which is a mind-blowing thought. Gifts given to the Son. So let that sink in and reshape your imagination. Because we're likely and theologically accurate to say, you know, the Son is a gift to us. It's true. More so than our words could ever express. But we often don't think that the church is a gift to Jesus. That the bride is a gift to the groom. It's more like we probably think it's a burden, a frustration. The church, us, we are a thorn in God's side and in the side of the Son. And he has to, has to deal with us all the time. But you're a gift that brings delight to the Savior. You're not a burdensome load that's unwanted and has to be put up with just because he happens to be the Savior of the cosmos. He's not annoyed when you speak to him and be like, oh no, not this guy again. He just keeps talking to me and he's always got these issues. Like he's just some irritable God who doesn't want to talk to his kids because they're, they're problematic. That is the opposite of the truth. The church, us, we are given to Christ as a gift. Also, the Father has given them to Jesus out of the world. Notice it says out of the world. In other words, when one becomes a child of God, when one becomes an apprentice of Jesus, the realm in which they live changes, right? Their domain changes. They change kingdoms. They go from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. They go from the kingdom of death into the kingdom of of life. We change kingdoms. Life is now different as we are followers of this Jesus, as we have been given by the Father to the Son. We're saved to and for something, which means we're also saved from something, and we no longer live that way because he has changed how we inhabit this world. So we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom 
of light. We live differently. Apprentices of Jesus live against the grain of this world. Yours they were, but you gave them to me, Jesus says. See, all human beings are creatures in the creator's world. He oversees this whole world. There's nothing outside of his reach, nothing outside of his jurisdiction. But then this father gives his people to Jesus, and they're his in a different way. They're no longer simply creatures, but they are his children who now have fellowship with him. And Jesus has shown them who this father is, that all things come from this father. You know, the book of James, a letter in the New Testament, says the following. James 1, verse 17 and 18 tells us that every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, of his own will, of the Father's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creations, that we should be new creations. So God the Father has brought us forth. How did he do it? Well, of his own will, right? which means the Father is the initiator of our salvation. It all comes from him. Jesus is adamant that everything is coming from the Father. Do you ever notice how father-obsessed Jesus is? He wants us to be a fathered people. All right, back to John here. Let's go through some of these verses, verses 6 through 10. And the Son is the one who shows us what the Father is like. This is verse 6. The Son is the one who shows us what the Father is like. That's what that word manifest speaks of. He reveals what the Father is like. The things Jesus has done, they all come from what he has seen the Father do. This is in verse 7. The words of Jesus are the words of the Father. What he hears the Father say, he gives to the people. That's verse 8. And then Jesus says he's from the Father. It says in truth. In other words, he says, no, really. No, no, really. I come from heaven. And he's saying they understand that I have come from heaven. I'm not just a man. I'm not just a teacher, a philosopher, a guru, but I am the one who comes from heaven to earth. And then we see that God has given his son to us. He says, they understand that you sent me. And in Greek, it's emphatic. It's not like, they understand that you sent me. They understand that you, the Father, has sent me. They know I'm here because of who you are. The son did not have a disagreement with some grumpy, like, sky god, you know. He'd be like, come on, let me go show him. Let me go show him. No, they won't understand. Now, come on, let, let me be the, the loving one because you're grumpy. They need some love in their life. That's just not how it works. The son shows the love of the father. Go, go to them and reveal the love relationship we have. Go and show them who I am and how much they're loved and how much they're wanted and how much they're welcomed into our embrace. That's the dynamic in the family. And so overall, the impression that we should get from this is God as a giver. God as a giver, a giver who gives us the gift of fellowship. The Father gives us his son. Man, I'm, I'm a dad, and, I, and I, I love my kids. 
and I, and I love you, but if you ask me to give you my son, I'm probably not going to give you Silas. But this father gives us his son, and when he gives us his son, it is to the grave. And this father gives us his son, and then this father gives us to his son. And then Jesus gives us the gift of revealing the father to us. Gave, gave, given, given, gave, given. I hope when you read this text from now on, that pattern of words affects how you read it. And you get the tone and the sense and the beauty of who this, this father is. Amen. Now, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. It's a strange phrase, isn't it? I have manifested your name. Again, what in the world does that mean? Well, in Jewish understanding, a name isn't just a word we call somebody. A name is a word that distills who that person is. It's a way of saying, this is their character. This is who they are. And so naming was often very, very, very uh, in- in- intentional. Um, I hope my name doesn't represent my character because it quite literally means wasteland. Um, but that's actually what I was before he came to make my life fruitful. So I guess it is, it is accurate. But a name encapsulates who somebody is. So this is really important. So to manifest or to show forth one's name was to show others who they are. Jesus is saying, I'm showing them who you are. I'm not just giving them some code word. I'm just giving them a name. And to know this helps us with prayer. To know this helps us with prayer. Why? Well, when Jesus teaches his apprentices to pray, what's one of the things he teaches them about praying? We pray to the Father in the, in the Son's name. What in the world does that mean? Like, we know that, but do we know it? Like, what does it mean? Okay, so let's dig into this a little bit here. The name of Jesus is not just a code word. It's not like prayer is, you know, some supernatural version of getting into a speakeasy, right? Where, where you say the code word, you knock on the door, and then you're led into the party. That's, that's not how it works. And the name of Jesus isn't some magical incantation that magically allows, you know, the Lord of the universe to now hear your, your requests. So what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Well, if we know that name isn't just what we call somebody— but we know that name is a summation of who they are and their character, well, then suddenly this whole thing explodes with meaning. So I want to connect a few dots here for a moment. So grant me a few moments to talk about what this means that Jesus has manifested God's name and what it means to pray in Jesus' name. And as we do so, we'll see why this prayer is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. So if you're like me, you need things laid out and you need steps. So what do we know so far from our passage? What do we know so far? Well, first, for Jesus, prayer is rooted in his relationship with his Father. Prayer is radically, fundamentally relational. It's not merely transactional or consumeristic. It's relational at its core. What is his is his Father's, and what is his Father's is his. God is the divine fellowship. God is the, the community of love, and we call this the Trinity. Jesus, the Son, shows us the Father. We know that from our text. God, the Father, has given his people to his Son. So we know that. The Father has given his people to his Son, and his Son to his people. 
And then also God has given us the gift of fellowship through Jesus. So these are things that we know so far from our studies last week and this week. But here's the question. How does this happen? How does this happen? How do we get this gift of prayer? How does fellowship happen? Well, so go with me back to the Old Testament. We're going to go back OT. We're going to go into the Old Covenant. We're going to talk about tabernacle and temple here for a few moments. What was the tabernacle or what was the temple? Well, it was, it was the, the place of overlap of heaven and earth. It wasn't just a building. It was a structure and it had furniture and it had form and it had rites and it had rituals. But all of those had meaning that was aimed at this idea of God dwelling with his people. Humanity dwelling with their God. Now, who was one of the main actors there in, in the temple, in the tabernacle that was always doing stuff there? The priest, right? The high priest. So a high priest had a few different functions. Um, the, the high priest was the one who would represent man to God and God to man. They were basically a, a bridge, a mediator. Have you ever heard the Latin term pontifex maximus? It's, it's often used in the, in the Catholic Church. It's, it'll be used for the Pope sometimes. Pontifex maximus. It literally means um, the, the great bridge builder. Priests were bridge builders that brought worlds together. And these worlds, worlds were the, the world of God and the world of man. The temple was the place where mankind would dwell with God. Now, the high priest had two key functions. What do you think those two key functions are? Can I have a guess at one of them? Sacrifice. The presenting of the sacrifice, right? See, the presenting of the blood, and that blood was for cleansing, Right? For the forgiveness of sins. So role one was sacrifice, presenting the blood. The other key role of the high priest. Yes, you nailed it. Intercessor. The one who would pray for the people and present the people before God. Sacrifice and prayer. Blood and incense. Come on. This is Jesus. Here is Jesus praying, offering this incense of prayer to his Father. And what is he going to be doing the next day? Dying in their place as their sacrifice. All this points to Jesus. Jesus is the high priest. I want to read two verses here from the book of Hebrews, which sounds like it's in the Old Testament, but it's in the New Testament. Uh, so we're going to read two verses that will help explain who this Jesus is and how he functions as a high priest and how it relates to prayer. So Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. says, Since then we have a great high priest who has <clears throat> passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Pause. What does it mean to draw near to the throne of grace? This is prayer. This is prayer. With confidence. We can pray with confidence. We can come to the God of all creation. 
with confidence we can come to the one who has the power to meet the needs that we have. With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. That's prayer. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. With confidence, we can come to the one who does provide the mercy, who does provide the grace in our time of need. Okay, so let's move on to one more passage in Hebrews. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 23. And I recommend that you would meditate on these this week and get these into your your bones. 10, verse 19 through 23 says, We have confidence to enter the holy places. Again, to go into the presence of God and, and to pray to him, to commune with him. How? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. This is a reference to the curtain in the temple that separated where God was and where the people were and only the high priest could go in. When Christ died on the cross, that veil in the temple was torn from the top down, thereby saying there's union now between God and man. Okay, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, his body, his sacrifice. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near, right? Prayer with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised, he's faithful. He is faithful. Okay, now I know that was a lot of theology packed into like two minutes there. So translation. (laughs) Jesus is the high priest that the temple and the sacrifices pointed to all along. They were foreshadows of the one that would come and change everything. But Jesus did not offer a lamb from a pasture. He offered himself as the lamb that came from heaven. He offered himself as the sacrifice to atone for human sins. And he opened the way. He became the bridge to unite heaven and earth. And he is the high priest who intercedes for us. He prays for us in this prayer. He prayed for his apprentices who were with him that night. And he takes our prayers before the throne of God. He prays on our behalf and has opened the way. He is the high priest that fulfills both of those functions. We doing okay? Okay. So what does this mean then when we are to pray in Jesus' name knowing what we now know about him as high priest? Again, it's not a code word. It's living in accordance with the reality of who he is. It means to pray knowing who Jesus is. It means when, when we pray, we, we come to the Father knowing that our high priest has sacrificed his very life to save ours, that he has interceded, that he is the bridge that brings heaven and earth together. It is to know that you are asking what you are asking and the Father is hearing it and he will answer those prayers in the way that is for your flourishing. It's to know all of that is because of who Jesus is, that Jesus is the gift given to humanity. That is what it means to pray in his name. It's not just a, I better finish this up. Here's, here's how you sign off. It's to say, Father, I need your mercy because I don't know if this marriage is going to work. 
I can't look at him now. I can't look at her now knowing what they did to me. I need your mercy because my heart is a rock. And I'm coming to you in the name of Jesus because you're the only hope to, to take heaven and to cram it into earth because my earth feels like hell right now. You have to do something I cannot do. So I'm coming in the name of the high priest who gave his life so that we could live and forgive each other. It's Father, I am coming to you asking for the strength to bear with my child in this addiction because my patience is gone. But you are patient unto death, and you are my high priest. Give me that patience. And I know you can because you're sitting on the throne of the cosmos right now. It's, it's going to him. And it's asking for yourself the grace to overcome whatever it is that is tearing you apart from the inside out and saying, I know you can do it. And I know you hear me. You have shown me your love you have gone all the way to the grave and up to the, the heavens for me. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. So there is power in the name of Jesus to shake the foundations of this earth and to alter the course of history. So when we pray, it's not just like, hey, come pray. I hope it makes you feel better. It's like, come pray and enter into reality and know that this God is for you. And he hears you. And this changes everything. Prayer is a given. Prayer is a given. Prayer is talking to God first and most about everything to the Christian. It's, it's like oxygen to the lungs. Prayer to the Christian is, is, is the heart to the body. But we also need to understand that prayer is a gift given. Again, prayer is a given invitation to fellowship. And if you, if you leave today knowing anything from this, I, I pray that you know that God has started the conversation. God has started the conversation with you. What difference does this make, that prayer is a gift given? Well, we've said that prayer is talking to God first and most about everything, right? Maybe that sounds good to you. But to some of you, I don't know if it sounds so good right now. Maybe you recoil at that thought. Maybe to you that sounds about as good as talking first and most to your dad or to your mom or to your boss about everything. And that is the last thing you would want to do in a million years because you know if you are to talk to that person, you are about to receive some condemnation. You are about to receive some shame. You are about to receive some guilt. You're going to see their irritation. You're going to see their anger, their critical spirit, their apathy, or the cold shouldering. So they are the last people that you want to go to with the most intimate stuff that you're wrestling with. In other words, not every one of us wants to dial God's number if he gives it to us. Because we have all these weird misconceptions about what will come our way, about who he is. So we're not ready to text him right away. Because we expect a verbal smackdown or some tone of divine disapproval that will make us feel all the worse. 
But here's the deal. We don't see how welcoming this God truly is. So maybe you don't want to be with God all the time. Maybe you don't want to talk to him all the time or talk to him about everything or anything. Maybe you don't feel safe with him. Well, if so, again, it's because you are not seeing him as he is. And Jesus wants us to see the Father as he is. You're not seeing this God as the good God who is the fountain of love that is relentlessly after our eternal flourishing and is, is lavishing forgiveness and grace and mercy and compassion on us. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. And some of you have a hard time going to him in prayer right after you've done something wrong because you're like, I just need to give it some time because there's no way he would want to talk to me right now. That is a lie. The reflex should be when you feel like, oh, I can't talk to God right now because of what I thought, said, or did. The reflex should be, that is why I need to go to my dad right away. Right away. So as soon as you feel one of these, like, I can't talk to him or I can't even read, I can't pray right now because of what I've done, said, or thought, let, let the new reflex be go to him instantly and say, you love me. You know, there, there's the story of the prodigal. He just makes a mess of his life, just implodes his life, hurts his family. The prodigal's off, and then he's like, oh, this is a mess. I got to go back to dad. Maybe he'll take me back. Maybe he'll take me back if I come up with the right words. It's kind of like how we think of prayer. I just got to get the right words and maybe manipulate him. Maybe I can be a servant. And what happens? Well, he comes back. He's all loaded, right, for this conversation. And the father sees him and runs. And this kid is about two or three words in. The the dad's like, stop. I don't care. Welcome home. That's how it is with prayer. We don't have to go and manipulate. And he's just like, oh, welcome home. Let that be your image of God. Let that reshape your imagination. Uh, Let that reshape how you see the one who you're praying to. It's not just talking first and most with the one about everything. It's, It's knowing that he is ready to hear you. God started the conversation. Prayer is a gift. It is an invitation into fellowship. It is not a last resort. It is a first and glorious response. We love because he first loved us. You know, I heard this quote this week, and it just, it just hit me. Uh, famous, fervent prayer advocate George Mueller, he once said that the chief duty, the first duty of the Christian is to get happy in God every morning. To get happy in God every morning, to come to him and know that he welcomes you with open arms and he delights to look upon his child. And let that reframe every request, every complaint that you have throughout the day. We need to enter prayer with the expectant recognition that God is spring-loaded to listen to us and to lavish his love on us. So remember... God started this conversation with you. You don't have to wonder if he wants to hear your voice. So let's not approach prayer from a position of lack. Let's approach prayer from a position of abundance of love, confident in his welcome because what our high priest has done on our account. God does not have a cell phone. 
but he has first engaged you and invited you into fellowship with him. Grace precedes us calling out to him. This is a great gift, to be invited into fellowship with our king.